Good morning, MBC Arlington. I'm Joe Carter, one of the pastors for our location. It's an honor to be with you as we gather together to encounter God through his word this morning. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Mark chapter 13. Uh, We're going to look at one of the most controversial and difficult chapters in the gospel of Mark. And unfortunately, that, that controversy and difficulty can lead us to miss out on the important message Jesus is sending through this passage. And we get so caught up in arguing about the prophetic aspects of this uh, chapter that we overlook the clear and direct commands of Jesus. And that's why it's tempting to just skip over the controversial parts and just get to the parts everyone can agree on. But we can't get around the controversy without skipping the t- ignoring the text. So we're going to tackle it head on. And what makes this chapter so difficult is that it appears to make three claims that are hard to reconcile. And Jesus says that there are two world-changing events, the destruction of the temple and that Jesus will return to earth. And he seems to be saying that both of these things are going to occur during the lifetime of his original disciples. And this has led people to adopt a variety of views and approaches to interpreting this text. And the first approach is just to assume that Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about or that he's lying. And that's a, a view held by many non-believers. And the second approach is to assume that Jesus is ignoring the question the disciples are asking about when the temple would be destroyed. And he's referring instead to events that's going to happen thousands of years in the future. Events that still have not happened in our time. And that's a view called futurism. And a third interpretation is what's called full preterism. And full preterism teaches that all biblical prophecy in the New Testament has already been fulfilled, including the prophecy that Jesus would return. A fourth group includes everyone who's just not clear at all about this and who doesn't know what to think about this prophecy. Now, true Christians don't believe Jesus was lying or that he doesn't know what he's talking about. So the first option is not option for us. But the second and third options, the futurist view and the preterist view, are legitimate and they're worthy of consideration. And after wrestling with this text for the past three decades and and hearing the arguments of evangelical scholars on this, I think there's another option, a mix of partial preterism and partial futurism that better fits with the biblical evidence. So when I said prophecy, some of you already started to check out and fall asleep. You find prophecy boring or confusing. And so you're thinking you're just going to stick with option number four, just the, the no opinion option. And I definitely understand that. I've held that view myself. But we should pay attention to this text because this is the topic that was on the mind of Jesus just days before he was going to the cross. And Jesus didn't tell us this prophecy because he wanted us, because we had a curiosity about the future. He isn't giving us something just to argue about with other Christians. Jesus is telling us about the future because he is trying to motivate us to live in a certain way. He wants us to adopt a specific mindset that changes how we view our life and how we engage with the world. And he's been calling us to adopt and practice a spiritual discipline that many of you might never ever heard about. So this chapter, Mark 13, includes essential information that Jesus wants us to know. But I'm not going to tell you what that part is just yet. You're going to have to stick with me through the controversial parts till we get to this stuff. So let's get started by praying for our time together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to come together today to worship you. As we examine your holy word, we ask you to open our eyes and soften our hearts so we can see the beauty and truth 
within your scripture. Illuminate this passage so that we might better understand what you want us to know and help us debate all the commands that we find within this text. In your son's holy name we pray, amen. So Mark 13 is a long chapter and there's a lot going on in it. So before we start looking at the details, let's kind of get an overview of where we're gonna be going in this passage. So the setting is in Jerusalem as Jesus and his disciples are coming out of the temple. And one of the disciples points to the temple and says, look at this amazing architecture. And Jesus says, all that, it's all gonna be destroyed. And so later, when they're on the Mount of Olives overlooking the temple, some other disciples come to him and ask, when is all this gonna happen? And then Jesus warns them about false prophets. And then he tells them to expect tribulation, which is a biblical word for oppression and suffering due to persecution. And Jesus then talks about a period of heightened tribulation that is to come in the future. And then he briefly talks about when he's going to come back during his second coming. And he ends this talk with a parable and some commands about the need to be watchful. So that's the general setting. Now let's kind of dig in each section more closely. And the chapter begins by saying, and as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what a wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be here one stone upon another that it will not be thrown down. So imagine how jarring it would be for these Jewish disciples to hear that the temple would be destroyed. Now, the temple was one of the most magnificent religious buildings in the Middle East and one of the most important buildings in all the ancient world. And it was also the most significant building in Jewish life and culture. And we can't really understand because there is nothing comparable for Americans. There's no building that symbolizes what has that level of significance for us. The closest parallel, parallel we have is when the World Trade Center was destroyed. And the collapse of those buildings had an effect on America's psyche in a way that changed how we live in, in profound ways. Yet the effect on the Jews of the destruction of the temple was exponentially greater. It wasn't just a destruction of a building. For them, it was the end of an age. And oddly enough, despite the significance of the destruction of the temple, which occurred in AD 70, about 37 years after Jesus ascended to heaven, some Christians claim that Jesus wasn't talking about that temple, but a future temple that would be rebuilt and then redestroyed. It is clear, it seems, that Jesus was indeed talking about this particular temple that existed during his day. Because Jesus and his disciples were coming out of that specific temple. His disciple points to those buildings. And Jesus says, those buildings will be destroyed. So I don't think it's plausible that Jesus said these buildings. He meant some buildings that didn't exist yet. That were sometime in the far distant future. Thousands of years in the future. What leads, and that leads to the discussion he has with his four disciples. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what would be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead me astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. 
So the disciples want to know when this temple is going to be destroyed and what will be the signs that this will happen. Yet Jesus begins to answer the question by giving them a series of non-signs. He starts by telling them what is not signs. Instead of saying, here's what to look for, he says, here are a lot of things that seem like they're signs, but they really aren't. And these non-signs are wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines. In other words, Jesus is saying, when you hear of man-made violence and natural disasters, don't think that the end is near. Those aren't the signs you should be looking for. Wars and famines are just the birth pains of the new era. It's like a pregnant woman is having contractions that are 15 minutes apart. She's not at the beginning. I mean, she's not at the end. She's at the beginning of her labor. And in the same way, Jesus is talking about things that are going to happen at the, they're happening at the beginning, not the end of the time. And Jesus tells them what the primary sign they need to be watching for are false messiahs. And when he says they're coming in his name, they don't mean they're going to come and say, I'm Jesus. They mean they're going to come and say that they're the Messiah. They're God's appointed one of God. But who is this sign for? Is this for the original disciples or is it for us? I believe this sign is for both of them. Because one of the key words in this answer that Jesus gives is you. Look at verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. And throughout this chapter, Jesus used the word you 24 times. He's talking directly to the disciples. They would have understood that he was talking about things that were going to happen to them and happen during their lifetimes. So the you in this passage obviously points to the disciples. But there's a sense, as we'll see later in this chapter, that the you can and does apply to us also, as it does to all Christians who lived from the time of the first disciples. And that's because the time frame Jesus is talking about, it starts when Jesus ascends to heaven, and it doesn't end until Jesus comes back. And during that entire period of time, which so far has lasted for thousands of years, we are living in an era when we will see all these signs Jesus talked about, such as tribulations and persecution and false messiahs and false teachers. These aren't just one-time events. These are patterns that occur throughout church history. For instance, after Jesus ascended to heaven, in the next four years, there were 12 different men who claimed to be the Messiah. And they were all rounded up and captured or killed by the Romans. But since then, there have been hundreds of people claiming to be Messiah. And there have been hundreds of thousands of false teachers since then. And then after warning us about false messiahs, Jesus next warns them and us about persecution. He says, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to the councils and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So you can just imagine how this caused the disciples to cringe. Here again, Jesus is telling them that they're going to be persecuted. They found the Messiah, the real Messiah, the true king. 
And instead of getting power and influence and cushy jobs in the administration, they're told to expect to get physically beaten, imprisoned, hated, and even killed. That's not what they want to hear. That's not what we want to hear. But Jesus also said that if you endure, if you endure all the way to the end, you will find salvation. You're going to suffer, says Jesus. You're going to lose your wealth, lose your families, lose your reputations, maybe even lose your life. But at the end, you get Jesus. And that means more than anything. It's like trading a molecule for the entire universe. As Paul says in Philippians 3.8, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so far in this chapter has been pretty straightforward. It might be difficult to accept and it might be difficult to live out, but it's pretty easy to, to understand. But the next passage is when things start to get complicated. It says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. But let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter into his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to his, take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. So the disagreement about this passage hinges on whether what Jesus is describing is some event in the distant future, some event that from our perspective hasn't even happened yet, or whether it describes an event that will occur during the lives of his original disciples. And one view says that this passage refers to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And that was the year when during the, the war between the Romans and the Jews, the Romans brutally sieged Jerusalem. And under the command of General Titus, the Romans breached the city walls, entered the temple, set it on fire, and tore down all the buildings. And a second view says, yes, that temple was indeed destroyed, but that's not the temple that Jesus is talking about. They say the Jewish people will someday build another temple on that very same spot, and that's the temple that Jesus says is going to be destroyed. And my own view is that both history and scripture point to this passage as referring to events that occurred during the lives of the original disciples. I believe this text is referring to both the destruction of the temple and of the heightened persecution that happened in AD 70. And again, a key point here is that Jesus says, but when you see, is Jesus really looking into the eyes of the disciples and saying you, when he means people that won't exist for thousands of years? I don't think he is. I think it's clear that when Jesus meant you, he was talking to you, his disciples, the people right in front of him. And then there's the reference to the abomination of desolation. Now, this is a reference from the book of Daniel. And we could spend hours unpacking what it means and how it applies to this passage. But for our purposes, we can simply look to the gospel of Mark 
to get a rough idea of what this is referring to. So Luke is writing to a non-Jewish audience who may have never read the book of Daniel. So he interprets the passage for them and says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. And I believe what Luke is referring to in in his gospel is when the armies of Rome surrounded Jerusalem. In fact, everything in verses 14 through 22 fits that time period and what we know from history. For example, when the Christians in Israel during the first century saw the Romans' army surrounding Jerusalem, they fled. They fled to the mountains. They fled to Jordan where they started a new church. And all the evidence we have points that the first Christians in those days believed that this passage was referring to them. So that part obviously fits with the text. But what about the prophecy about heightened tribulation? Verse 19 tells us, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been seen from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. So many Christians assume that text must be referring to another tribulation. And what's sometimes called the great tribulation that will occur at the end of time. And I think verse 19 gives us a reason to believe that this cannot be a tribulation that comes at the end of time. Now, it's not as clear as it could be in the ESV. So let's look at a couple of other English translations. The NIV says, because those will be days of distress unequal from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. And the CSB says, for those will be days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now and never will be again. So this verse implies that the persecution and tribulation will continue even after this tribulation that Jesus is talking about. But that none will be more severe than that one. So the problem with seeing this is referring to a tribulation that occurs at the end of time is that that is supposed to be the last tribulation. There shouldn't be any more that comes after that. And so Jesus is obviously pointing to this tribulation as one where other tribulations are going to follow. So if you believe we are waiting for some future great tribulation, then you should assume that verse 19 applies to the events of AD 70. But was that tribulation and instruction in the temple severe enough to fit this prophecy? Now, it could be that Jesus is just using hyperbolic language, similar to what we find in the Old Testament. For example, Joel 2.2 describes a great and powerful people like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Now, that verse is obviously hyperbolic, intended to be hyperbolic, because as great and powerful as the Babylonians were, there's been other people that were greater. The Romans were greater. Even modern-day America is greater. So this statement by Jesus could be being intentionally hyperbolic. However, I think Jesus was indeed describing how horrific the events were when the temple was destroyed. The great Jewish historian Josephus, who lived during the time of the apostles and saw the destruction of the temple, described the brutality as unparalleled in history, whether Greeks or barbarians. And unfortunately, we don't have time this morning to explain how or why it was so horrific or how it applies to this prophecy. But I think it's clear that Jesus was warning Christians living at that time to flee Jerusalem when Romans invaded. And up to this point, I believe Jesus has been answering the disciples' questions about when the temple would be destroyed. But then he begins to talk about things that I don't believe happened in AD 70. 
In the next section we see, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the earth to the ends of heaven. So to understand this passage, we need to understand how the language fits with the rest of the Bible. And almost everything in this passage is using eschatological language, language that refers to the end times. And much of this language is exactly the same as what we find in the Old Testament. And if we interpret it too literally, we can miss out on what it's actually saying. For example, when it talks about the stars will be falling in heaven, it's not talking about celestial bodies falling from the sky. No, this is the language that Old Testament uses to refer to the fall of earthly powers and earthly nations. And notice also that this is the only paragraph in this section that Jesus does not use the word you. He's talking about events that are not going to happen at the time of the disciples, events that are going to happen in the distant future. And when Jesus says, they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, he's referring to the nations and the powers as they, and they will be the ones to see his second coming. And it's easy to overlook the most important thing being conveyed in this paragraph. Jesus is coming back. When is he coming back? We don't know. What is the sign he's going to come back? We don't know. What do we know? We know he's coming back. And that truth changes everything. And as we'll see in the final sections, our job is not to predict when Jesus is coming back. Our job is to be ready when he comes back. And that's the focus of the last two paragraphs of this chapter. And the first includes a parable. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch come, becomes tender and puts out its, put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, a key phrase in this section is, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. Again, I think it's clear that he meant you, he meant the disciples. He also says this generation. And there are 13 times when Jesus refers to this generation or generations in the Gospels. And every single time, he's referring to the generation of disciples who were living at that time. So I think it's clear that what Jesus meant in this passage too, Jesus is saying this generation of disciples will not pass away until all these things have occurred. And what are the, all these things he's referring to? I think it's clear he's referring to the destruction of the temple and the persecution that came. He's not referring to the second coming. And that leads to the last section. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the key paragraph that tells us how we are to apply this message of Jesus. Now, you might have disagreed on how I interpreted this prophecy, and that's okay. Christians can disagree on how 
this section is supposed to be interpreted. But I believe this paragraph is where we all Christians get back on the same page. We can all agree on what Jesus is telling us in this last section. And I've been glossing over that point until now because I wanted to first deal with the prophetic sections separately. Because as I mentioned in the beginning, we often get so wrapped up in how this prophecy is supposed to be interpreted that we miss the clear commands that Jesus gives us in this section. So let's look a little more closely at those. Verse 5 says, See that no one leads you astray. Verse 9, But be on guard. Verse 23, But be on guard. Verse 33, Be on guard. Keep awake. Verse 35, Therefore stay awake. Verse 36, Stay awake. Notice the pattern here? Six times in 32 verses, Jesus tells us to be on guard, to stay awake. When Jesus says something once, we should be paying attention. When he repeats something six times, he's trying to make it clear. He doesn't want us to miss his point. So what does it mean to be on guard? And what is required of us to stay awake? Or to be wakeful is to be watchful. And this is why this spiritual practice is often called watchfulness. And to be on guard, you not only have to be awake, but you must be watching for danger, and to be alert for what's to come. And we're going to look at a few scriptures in a moment to help us understand this concept of watchfulness. But let's summarize what we're going to find by saying that staying awake and being on guard means guarding our hearts and observing our thoughts and our actions and our behaviors to ensure that we are avoiding temptation and false teaching and that we are staying close to Jesus and to God's word for the sake of of ourselves and others. Staying awake and being on guard means guarding our hearts and observing our thoughts and behaviors to ensure we are avoiding temptation and false teachings and then we are staying close to Jesus for the sake of ourselves and others. So let's look at the elements of this definition. First, watchfulness requires guarding our hearts and observing our thoughts and behaviors. As Proverbs 4.23 says in the NIV, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. We must guard our heart because everything we think and do, all our actions, all our thoughts, all our behaviors, flows from our heart. Second, watchfulness requires that we avoid temptation and false teachings. In Mark 13, we've already seen Jesus talk about avoiding false messiahs and false teachers. In Matthew 26, 41, he tells us, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We can't let our guard down. We must constantly be vigilant and on watch against temptation and sin. And third, watchfulness requires that we stay close to Jesus and stay close to God's word. As Hebrews 12, 3, 12 to 13 tells us, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. We must constantly keep our eye on Jesus and keep his word hidden in our heart. Fourth, watchfulness includes being spiritually awake. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 through 8, so then let, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate. And the hope of salvation is a helmet. Now, Paul here is talking about being spiritually awake and spiritually asleep. 
And Justin Dillahay has the best explanation I've seen for the difference between being spiritually awake and spiritually asleep. He says, being asleep means living as though God didn't exist. Waking up means realizing there's a God to whom you'll give an account for your life. Being asleep means spending your time and your money as though this age were all there is. Waking up means realizing this life is a vapor. Eternity is infinitely more important and real life has barely begun. Being asleep means viewing yourself as the center of the universe. Waking up means counting God and neighbor more insignificant than yourself. Being asleep means assuming that if God does exist, he's tolerant and will accept you as long as you're true to yourself and do your best. Waking up means realizing that God is holier than you ever dreamed and you're worse than you ever imagined and your best will never be good enough. Being asleep means the day of the Lord will surprise you like a thief. Waking up means the day of the Lord will be more like a surprise party. You knew when it was coming. You just didn't know when. We must constantly ensure that we are awake to the reality of God. And the fifth element of being watchful is staying awake and being on guard for the sake of others and for the sake of ourselves. And the Apostle Paul told the young pastor Timothy to keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And Paul's command in Timothy applies not just to pastors, it applies to all of us. Every Christian has a responsibility to stay awake for the sake of other people. And this is a lesson I learned the hard way. When I was in Marine boot camp, we used to stand a guard duty called Firewatch. And one recruit, uh, two recruits would stay awake at night. One would stand by the door and one would walk around the barracks patrolling, looking for problems. And on one night, I was, I was doing the patrol. And I walked to the back of the room, and there was a spare bunk back there, and I was tired, and I thought, well, I'll just sit down for a moment. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just lay down for a moment. Then I thought, well, maybe I'll just close my eyes just for a moment. And the next thing I know, some drill instructor I'd never seen before is dragging me across the floor and banging on the door, waking up my drill instructor. They're important, I was asleep on watch. And my drill instructor looks at me with... Um, Sleepy eyes says he'll deal with me in the morning. And so now I can't sleep. <laughs> I'm thinking of all the ways he's going to make me suffer in the morning. And when dawn comes, he calls me and the other recruit up to uh, where he is. And then he says the one thing I wasn't expecting. He tells me just to stand there. And then he punishes the other recruit. And this went on and on and on. So I thought I was just going to drown in my guilt. And then my DI looks me in the eye and says, when you fall asleep on your watch, someone else gets hurt because you weren't there to watch out for him. He's probably going to get killed. And that was 35 years ago. And today I can't tell you the maximum effective range of an M16. I can't tell you how to read a topographical map. I can't tell you anything else I learned in boot camp. But I still remember that lesson. When you fall asleep on watch, someone else is going to get hurt. And unfortunately, while I learned that lesson at age 19, it took me another decade to learn how to apply it spiritually. And over that next decade, I continually let my guard down. I wouldn't watch over my own heart. I wouldn't watch over my thoughts or my actions. And I was continuously lured into temptation and sin. I became so caught up in sin that it was questionable whether I was ever truly a Christian at all. I became the kind of person Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 
who will not inherit the kingdom of God. What was clear, though, was that I was misleading other people about what it meant to be a Christian. I told other people that I was a Christian, even though I was living like an unrepentant sinner. I was giving other people, especially immature and young Christians, the idea that sinful disobedience was a legitimate way to live. I was doing the same thing that the false messiahs and false prophets were doing. I was just doing it on a smaller scale. I was leading people away from the true God. And sometimes we lead people away from God through our actions, and sometimes we do it through words. And we deceive other people about God because we first deceive ourselves. We need to be on guard to stay awake so that we don't become false teachers. And just as we need to stay awake for the sake of other people, we need also to stay awake for ourselves. Have you ever been drifting off to sleep and you know you're not quite awake, but you know you aren't fully asleep yet? Being spiritually asleep is like that. You can usually tell when you're drifting off into that state and something about it gnaws at your conscience. A good example of this is a song called Find Me Here by a young country singer named Tucker Tucker Bethard. And this song is all about being spiritually asleep, but knowing you need to wake up. And in the song, he's drunk, and he's, he's in bed with a girl. He doesn't even know her name. And then he starts talking to Jesus. He says, and there's a preacher on the TV saying something about you coming back soon. It got me thinking about how if you walked in now, what I'd do. If I get down on my knees, and it ain't too much to ask, could you break the chains that hold me down and get the devil off my back? And if you go and split that eastern sky, I pray you take your time. Yeah, I promise you, I'll make these old boots walk a straight line. Really, I don't want to be caught in room 316 with a hotel Bible as a coaster underneath my beer. And Lord, if you decide tonight, the night you're coming back, I hope you don't find me here. I'm tangled up in hotel sheets, three sheets to the wind. I'm kicking myself, staring at this cross on my skin. That last line always makes me sad. A tattoo of a cross isn't going to save you. There will be people in hell with ink on their skin that says Jesus saves. I don't have a tattoo of a cross, but I used to look for similar signs that while I might be spiritually asleep, I wasn't spiritually dead. I tell myself that I gave my heart to Jesus when I was six years old. But the reality was my heart had turned away from obeying God. Or I tell myself that I was repentant because every night before I'd fall asleep, I'd ask God to forgive me for my sins. All the time knowing, even as I was saying those words, I fully intended to commit those same sins the very next day. I told myself I loved Jesus, but the reality is I had no intention of truly loving Jesus because I had no intention of obeying him. I was lost, and my false piety was not going to save me. And what I realized now that I didn't recognize back then is that you can't say you have faith if you don't obey. If I truly had faith in Jesus, if I truly loved Jesus, my thoughts and my actions would show that love through my obedience. And that's why now, in almost every sermon, I find some excuse to quote John 14, 15. And that's the verse that caused me to snap out of my slumber and to wake up to the reality of what Jesus is calling us to. 
In John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And notice this verse is not saying, if you keep the commandments, Jesus will love you. No, that's a form of legalism. That's not the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus loves you when you are still spiritually dead. He loves you so much that he died to pay the price that we owed. His love is the foundation of our relationship with him. And as recipients of his love and grace, we are called to respond in love and obedience. Jesus showed us how much he loves us by going to the cross for us. And he says how we're supposed to show love to him by keeping his commands. And this includes the command to stay awake. We are commanded to be spiritually alert and watchful. And I can say with certainty that one of two things is going to happen to you. The first possibility is that Jesus will come back during your lifetime. And you may witness the glorious return of the Son of Man coming in power in clouds. And the other possibility is you will fall asleep for the last time on earth. And you're going to wake up in the presence of Jesus. Either way, we're going to come face to face with our Savior. And the question you may ask is, what will Jesus find when you see him face to face? Will he find you faithfully living according to his commandments? Will you be fully awake and engaged? Will you be found neglecting your relationship with him or failing to obey all he's commanded you? If you truly love Jesus, you should desire to be found faithful and ready when he returns. You don't want to be caught in room 316, caught off guard and spiritually asleep, ignoring the command to be watchful. So let's strive to be found faithful. Let's eagerly await his return and live in a way that reflects our love for Jesus and what we believe about Jesus. Let's stay awake. And let's be on guard. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, help us to stay awake. Help us to be on guard against the temptations that would lead us to sin against you. Help us to be on guard against the false teachings that would lead us away from you. Help us to be watchful over our hearts so that we may stay close to you. And help us cling to your Son as our only hope in life and death. Amen.